3: Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. On
5: Monday, November 25th, 1963, President Kennedy was laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery. At the First Lady's request, the ceremony followed the same protocols for Abraham Lincoln's funeral nearly 100 years earlier. The flag-draped casket was drawn by six gray horses. It was followed by one riderless black horse. Crowds lined Pennsylvania Avenue as the procession passed. Only the sounds of the drums and the clacking of horses' hooves on the pavement could be heard. I'll never forget the rhythm. Bum, 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 ba bum. Mrs. Kennedy, surrounded by family, friends, official dignitaries, and a military escort, walked to St. Matthew's Cathedral for the service. Heads of state and representatives from more than 100 countries attended the funeral. Millions of people around the world tuned in to watch on television. After the service, the president's remains were laid to rest at Arlington Memorial Cemetery, where Mrs. Kennedy lit An eternal flame. 250,000 people waited up to 10 hours in freezing temperatures to pay their respects. The nation was in mourning. At virtually the same time, Lee Harvey Oswald, who had been murdered 24 hours earlier on live television by nightclub owner Jack Ruby, was also being put to rest. Along with Oswald's remains... Secrets were buried.
4: This is Who Killed JFK. Sixty years later, what can we uncover about the greatest murder mystery in American history? And why does it still matter today? I'm your host, Soledad O'Brien.
5: We've shown evidence that indicates that at the time of the shooting, Oswald was not on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository building. He seemed to know that he was part of something, but likely didn't know exactly what it was. But when he heard that the president had been shot, he realized at that point that he was in danger. He fled the scene, and he was ultimately arrested at the Texas movie theater. At the Dallas police station, he claimed his innocence when he spoke this phrase, I'm just a patsy. Within 48 hours of his arrest, Jack Ruby saw to it that Lee Harvey Oswald would never speak again. A year later, the Warren Commission report was released to the public. It set out with the goal of pinning it all on Oswald. And it did. They wanted him to look like a lone gunman. Here is what they had to say about Jack Ruby. The
4: Warren Commission report says, quote, No direct or indirect relationship between Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby has been discovered by the commission, nor has it been able to find any credible evidence that either knew the other. The commission has found no evidence that Jack Ruby acted with any other person in the killing of Lee Harvey Oswald.
5: And they took Ruby at his word. When he told them that he had killed Oswald, out of sympathy for Jackie, he wanted to spare her the pain of having to return to Dallas for a trial.
4: That seems just a bit absurd as an excuse.
5: Yes, it does, but it wasn't all that Jack Ruby had to say. He said something to his jailer after being arrested for killing Oswald, and it speaks to something much, much bigger. Soledad, could could you read this? Sure. Quote,
4: Now they're going to find out about Cuba, the guns, New Orleans, and everything.
5: Ruby was concerned that his connection to the CIA-funded anti-Castro operations would be uncovered.
4: How exactly is a guy like Jack Ruby connected to what's happening in Cuba and New Orleans?
5: Well, to understand that, we need to understand who exactly Jack Ruby was. Jack Ruby was born in Chicago. He was born Jacob Leon Rubinstein. At 11, he was arrested for truancy. He spent time in foster homes, he dropped out of school, and eventually joined the Teamsters Union. After serving in World War II, he moved to Dallas. He changed his name to Jack Ruby, and he started managing nightclubs and strip joints around town.
0: There's evidence he also became involved in narcotics, prostitution, and gambling. Obviously, these are all businesses that are connected to the mob. The Dallas
5: County Sheriff, Steve Guthrie, told the FBI that he believed, quote, Ruby operated some prostitution activities and other vices in his club. He was cozy with the Dallas police. Officers would come into his club and he'd give them free booze, and he'd make sure that the women paid proper attention. Hmm, quite the host. Along with running his clubs, Ruby became involved in running guns for the mob.
4: A friend of Ruby's named James E. Baird spoke to the Dallas Morning News and testified to the FBI, saying that Jack Ruby, quote, stored guns and ammunition in a two-story house between the waterfront and the railroad tracks in Kima, Texas. Baird personally saw Ruby and his associates load, quote, many boxes of new guns, including automatic rifles and handguns. Where exactly was he running these guns to?
5: Cuba. In September 1959, Ruby traveled to Havana as a guest of a close friend named Louis J. McWillie. Before Castro took over, Florida mob boss Santos Traficanti chose McWillie to run his casino in Havana. And after Castro came to power, McWillie was arrested and thrown out of the country. Back in the U.S., McWillie was hired by Meyer Lansky and Sam Giancana to run
0: their casinos in Las Vegas. Five days before Kennedy was gunned down in Dallas, Ruby was seen at the Thunderbird in Vegas with McWillie. You
5: know, people often get lost in the semantics of whether or not Ruby was a mobster. Well, he wasn't a made man himself, but he had clear connections to the mob. It's the world he grew up in and the world he operated from in Dallas. They say you can tell a lot about a person by the company they keep. The House Select Committee looked at Ruby's phone records in the days leading up to November 22nd, and they discovered that he had made numerous
0: phone calls to known mobsters. Their reports showed that weeks prior to the assassination, Ruby made approximately 120 calls to mobsters associated with Sam Giancana and Carlos Marcello.
4: So how does this relate back to Oswald?
0: Well, just like we saw an
5: uptick in activity around Oswald leading up to the assassination, the same was true of Ruby. Ruby and Oswald operated in the same sphere. So it should come as no surprise when I tell you that contrary to the Warren Commission's conclusion, that there was no direct or indirect relationship between Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby, there is plenty of evidence that the two of them knew each
0: other.
4: How do we know that?
5: Well, there are eyewitnesses who
0: talked on the record about Ruby and Oswald's relationship. Dorothy Markham, a woman who dated Ruby, told the FBI that Oswald worked for Ruby during June and July. Clyde Malcolm Limbaugh, who worked for Ruby for three years, said he saw Oswald in Ruby's office on several occasions. Helen K. Smith, who worked at the Carousel Club, told the Dallas police that she saw Ruby and Oswald together on many occasions. And Robert Roy, Ruby's auto mechanic, said that Oswald used to drop off Ruby's car for repairs. And then there's Shari Angel, one of the most popular
5: strippers at Ruby's club. Dick interviewed her years ago.
0: I heard that you remember Oswald being in the club as well?
2: Yeah.
0: What do you remember about that?
2: Dancing with Kathy Kaye doing the twist, and my husband hit him one time. He called my husband a communist.
0: Called your
5: husband a communist?
2: From the audience,
5: yeah. If you miss that, she said that she remembers Oswald doing the twist with a woman named Kathy Kaye and her husband hitting him because Oswald called him a communist.
0: So Oswald and Ruby definitely knew each other in the club before it happened. Oh, yeah.
4: And none of those witnesses testified to the Warren Commission?
5: None. And it wasn't until seven months after he killed Oswald that Ruby was even interviewed by the commission. And what he said, and didn't get to say, will shock you.
2: Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
4: Why did the Warren Commission wait so long to interview Jack Ruby? How was he not at the top of the list?
5: You tell me. Before being interviewed by the commission, Ruby insisted on taking a lie detector test.
4: In the Warren Commission report, it says that, quote, As early as December of 1963, Jack Ruby expressed his desire to be examined with a polygraph, truth serum, or any other scientific device which would test his veracity.
5: And did they give him one? Well, no, no, not at first. Uh, Eventually they did. What did it show? The Warren Commission said that they found it inconclusive.
4: What does inconclusive mean?
5: Well, they said that they couldn't verify the answers as true or false based on concerns they had over Ruby's mental state. It was an excuse that they used for other witnesses that didn't perfectly fit into the predetermined narrative. Ruby was frustrated, and when the Warren report came out, this is what he said to the press.
4: Ruby said, quote, The Warren report never gave me the true authenticity when I requested a polygraph test. He then goes on to say why they held back the answers, the results, whether they're true or false, that's for you to find out. That's for you to find out. That's pretty ominous.
5: I think he wanted to tell the truth about why he killed Oswald, but he knew that his life would be in danger if he did. So Ruby told the Warren Commission that if they got him out of Dallas— He would tell them everything he knew. He would tell them everything? You kind of can't get more loaded than that. No, no, you can't. And he said, quote, Gentlemen, unless you take me to Washington, you can't get a fair shake out of me. If you want to hear any further testimony out of me, you'll have to get me to Washington soon. I want to tell the truth, and I can't tell it here. This isn't the place for me to tell you what I want to tell. Did they take him to D.C.? He never left Dallas.
0: After he was denied his trip to Washington, Ruby said, quote, I may not live tomorrow to give any further testimony. I want to get out to the public, and I can't say it here. Why couldn't he speak in Dallas? Why do you think he wanted to move
4: so badly?
5: He was terrified for his life. He said, quote, I tell you, gentlemen, my whole family is in jeopardy. He didn't want to end up like George de DeMorenchild who mysteriously died the day he was subpoenaed to testify to the House Select Committee. Or Johnny Roselli, who was found chopped up and stuffed in an oil drum right before he was supposed to appear before the committee. Or Richard Case Nagel, who died the day he received a subpoena to testify
0: to the Assassination Records Review Board. Here is how Robert Blakey, head of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, interpreted Ruby's remarks. Blakey
4: said, quote, Ruby was trying to tell the truth about the conspiracy he knew existed, but he feared for his life. You'll remember that Robert Blakey had a background in targeting organized crime. The mob
5: kills witnesses who are potential people who can tell the true story. And that's the reason I think Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. From the time Kennedy was shot and killed until he himself was shot and killed, Oswald was in custody for just under 48 hours. Here's a transcript from a press conference during that period. Soledad, could you read this?
4: Sure. Reporter. Did you kill the president? Oswald. No, sir, I didn't. People keep asking me that. Reporter. Did you shoot the president? Oswald. I work in that building. Reporter. Were you in the building at the time? Oswald. Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Reporter. Reporter. Did you shoot the president? Oswald, no, they are taking me in because of the fact that I lived in the Soviet Union. I'm just a patsy. It's remarkable that he's just out there fending for himself. Usually, you know, in any press conference with a suspected criminal, their lawyer would speak for them.
0: Oswald was never granted a lawyer. Did he get to make any phone calls? He called Marina at Ruth Payne's. And there's evidence that he made one other call, and it's significant.
5: He placed a call to a military counterintelligence officer in North Carolina named John Hurt.
4: And how do we know that?
5: Because there's a receipt showing that the operator placed the call. The switchboard operators who placed long-distance calls for people inside the jail were required to fill out a slip. A researcher found the slip with the date 11-23-63 and John Hurt's name and telephone number. The woman working the switchboard that evening said that the call was never answered and that the two men in suits that were in the room likely made sure that the call
0: never went through. Researchers found John Hurt decades later to ask him about the call. He claimed he never knew Oswald and was completely unaware that Oswald had tried to call him. But he also didn't share the fact that he was military counterintelligence.
4: What do you think he was hoping to accomplish with
0: the call, if he actually got hurt on the line? It was likely, and this process has been confirmed by ex-CIA agents, that Oswald was trying to reach a cutout, a go-between, to get a message to his case officer. He was going through a process designed for people on intelligence missions to get help. But since the call was never put through, Oswald was hung out to dry. In another press
5: conference at the police station, a reporter asks, did you kill the president? And Oswald says, quote, no, I have not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. The reporter then tells Oswald, you have been charged. And Oswald is absolutely stunned. In the
4: televised report of this moment, you can really see his shocked reaction to this in real time.
5: He's realizing the implications of it all that this horrific crime is gonna be pinned on him. And again, he, he didn't just say that he was innocent. He said he was a patsy. He knew that the men responsible for this had used him. That's why from the moment Oswald is brought to the police station, Jack Ruby starts to stalk him. Ruby's movements just before he kills Oswald show that this was not a spontaneous emotional decision. Ruby was part of something much bigger.
3: We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials
2: cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it.
3: From iHeart Podcasts. It's
2: like the police knew who he was before they got here.
3: A story about money, power, and corruption.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
5: Jack Ruby showed up at the police station at least twice before he found the opportunity
0: on his third visit to take Oswald out. He was there during a press conference. At D.A. Henry Wade's press conference, when Wade mistakenly identified Oswald as a member of the anti-Castro Free Cuba Committee, Ruby corrected the DA saying, quote, No, sir, Mr. District Attorney. Oswald was a member of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. None of the press or police
5: or FBI there caught the DA's mistake. But nightclub owner Jack Ruby did? It's just so bizarre. First of all, why is a nightclub owner at this press conference to begin with? And second, how does he know the difference between the Free Cuba and the Fair Play for Cuba Committee.
4: So what exactly is the
5: implication there? That Ruby knew all about Oswald. We spoke with a man named John Currington about the time leading up to Oswald's death. Now, John Currington for years was the right-hand man for oil baron H.L. Hunt. Hunt was one of the richest men in America with influence at the highest levels of government and the mafia. Now, here is John Currington talking about a call he received on Saturday, November 23rd, from H.L. Hunt.
2: He called me about 4 or 5 o'clock and asked me to go down to the police station and check on what security, if any, there was around Lee Harvey Oswald. And he said, whenever you find out what I want to know about security, uh, come to the house. So what did you find? I go down to the police station. And I had no trouble walking in, walking out. I did have a briefcase with me. Nobody looked in that briefcase. And I was satisfied that there was no security whatsoever surrounding Lee Harvey Oswald.
5: And why did Mr. Hunt ask you to check out the security situation?
2: He wanted Lee Harvey Oswald silenced without uh, having any kind of court hearing or anything
5: else. They knew that they could easily get to Oswald. They just needed the right guy to handle the job, and Hunt knew just who to turn to.
2: I went out to Mr. Hunt's house, and uh, he said, I want you to get a hold of Joe Savello and have him here as early as you can Sunday morning.
5: Joe Savello was the head of the mob in Dallas.
0: It's the morning of the 24th, two days after the assassination. At 10.35, Ira Walker, a television technician, is inside the station's news van outside the city hall. Jack Ruby comes up to the window and asks, has he been brought down yet? The he is Lee Harvey Oswald.
5: Ruby knows that Oswald is going to be moved that day, and he hangs around to make sure that he is there when it happens. At 1117, Ruby walks up an alley, passes through the crowd, and enters the ramp into the police station. Within minutes, he's positioned directly in front of Oswald. And then, he shoots
3: Oswald.
4: Here's David Talbot again.
3: He was a mafia errand boy. That's why he killed Oswald. And the mafia was the errand boys for the CIA. They used the mafia to do their dirty work.
4: And here's the head of the House Select Committee, Robert Blakey.
3: Jack
5: Ruby was the perfect guy to do it. Mob-connected, but loosely. Ruby gave an interview in March of 1965, a year after his conviction.
4: In the interview, Ruby said, quote, "...everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. The people who had so much to gain and had such an ulterior motive for putting me in the position I'm in... We'll never let the true facts come above board to the world. In
5: 1966, Jack Ruby died in prison, three years after the assassination of President Kennedy. He died of a pulmonary embolism caused by complications from a cancer that came on suddenly and aggressively. In the next episode, we'll lay out in detail how we think the assassination took place. We will name the shooters and give you their locations. But before we finish this episode, we need to talk about something that, for the most part, has been ignored. And that's the impact that Kennedy's death had on the rest of the world.
0: On the day of the assassination, Fidel Castro was having lunch with a French reporter named Jean Daniel. Danielle reported that when Castro got word that the president had been shot, he said, Es una mala noticia. This is bad news. He said it three times. Then, when he got confirmation that Kennedy had died, he said, quote, Everything is going to change. Then, as he processed the situation, Castro said, quote, Now they will have to find the assassin quickly, but very quickly. Otherwise, you watch and see. I know them. They will try to put the blame on us for this thing. Which
5: is exactly what they
0: did.
4: Reports that were declassified in 2017 show that the KGB held a series of emergency meetings when they heard the news. Sergei Khrushchev, Nikita's son, wrote in a memoir about his father that when his father heard the news, he, quote, fell to his knees and sobbed. The Soviet Party's newspaper, Pravda, ran a biography depicting Kennedy as a champion of
5: peace. It's completely counterintuitive to think that the Soviets or the Cubans had anything to do with this. Kennedy was trying to forge a path towards peace with them. He was their great hope. Then who did these foreigners think did it? I believe that
0: the answer to your question can be provided by French President Charles de Gaulle. De Gaulle shared his thoughts about the assassination with his information minister, Roger Paraffit, who then shared these thoughts in his memoir.
4: De Gaulle says, quote, What happened to Kennedy is what nearly happened to me. The security forces were in cahoots with extremists. Then Paraffit asked De Gaulle, Do you think Oswald was a front? Everything leads me to believe it, De Gaulle replied. They got their hands on this communist who wasn't one, while still being one. He had a subpar intellect and was an exalted fanatic, just the man they needed, the perfect one to be accused. The guy ran away because he probably became suspicious. They wanted to kill him on the spot before he could be grabbed by the judicial system. De Gaulle continued, security forces all over the world are the same when they do this kind of dirty work. As soon as they succeed in wiping out the false assassin, they declare that the justice system no longer need be concerned, that no further public action was needed now that the guilty perpetrator was dead. Better to assassinate an innocent man than to let a civil war break out. Better an injustice than disorder. De Gaulle said, America is in danger of upheavals. But you'll see all of them together will observe the law of silence. They will close ranks. They'll do everything to stifle any scandal in order to not lose face in front of the whole world, in order to not risk unleashing riots in the United States, in order to preserve the Union and to avoid a new civil war, in order to not ask themselves questions. They don't want to know. They don't want to find out they won't allow themselves to find out.
5: De Gaulle was right on just about all of it, except one thing. I believe Americans do want to find out. We do want to know what happened. And on the next episode, we're going to tell you.
4: Next episode, Rob and Dick finally answer the question, who killed JFK?
0: I see the hallmarks or the markers of this potentially being a CIA operation that Rogues would have conducted.
3: This was a top-secret facility. He was there all during that fateful weekend. Oswald wasn't a damn thing in the world, but a decoy.
4: Who Killed JFK is hosted by Rob Reiner and me, Soledad O'Brien. And our executive producers are Rob Reiner, Michelle Reiner, Matt George, Jason English, David Hoffman, and me, Soledad O'Brien. Our writer is David Hoffman, with research by Dick Russell. Our story editors are Rob Reiner and Julie Pinheiro. Our senior producer is Julie Pinheiro. Our producers are Tristan Nash, Dick Russell, Michelle Goldfein, and Amari Lee. Our editors are Tristan Nash, Julie Pinheiro, and Marcus DeLauro. Our project manager is Carol Klein. Our associate producer is Emilce Quiros. Mixing, mastering, and sound design by Ben LaHoullier. Research and fact-checking by Girl Friday and Emilce Quiros. Archival audio in this episode thanks to Dick Russell and Rob Reiner. Business affairs by Hernan Narea and Jonathan Furman. Our consulting producer is Roseanne Galeini. Recorded in part at CDM Studio and 4th Street Recording Studio. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Special thanks to Joe Honig, Rose Arce, and Dan Storper. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Who Killed JFK is a production of Soledad O'Brien Productions and iHeart Podcasts.
1: This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It's like the police knew who he was before they got here.
3: From iHeartPodcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life.